Good morning, folks. Great to see you here at Cornerstone Church. My name's Steve. I'm one of the leaders. It is great to have, have you with us. If you're visiting especially, welcome. I hope you feel at home amongst us. Now, I just want to just reiterate one of the notices that Ben shared before, that it is a great joy that people next week are going to be baptized, isn't it? What a joy. Folks, that's what we are about. We're about people coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about our glory. It's about His glory and the good of what that means for them, not only now, but for an eternity. So I want to encourage those of you who have confessed in your heart, uh, believe in your, your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, I want to encourage you that the first step of obedience is to be baptized. Jesus says, believe and be baptized. And the baptism is not primarily a public proclamation of what you believe. The baptism is you identifying with the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And actually, the picture of baptism is a picture of the good news that you say that you believe. And when you are baptized, you are baptized identifying with the people who also believe the same thing, the church. We get the opportunity to share our faith. We get the opportunity to share with people what Jesus has done for us. But folks, if we are banking on that being the only time we proclaim to those who do not know Jesus, who may be in our family or in our friendship groups, we're missing the point. Because the whole of our lives should be a proclamation of what Jesus has done for us as we walk in obedience. So I want to encourage you. If you're waiting for the right time, there's never a right time. If you want to make sure that everybody in your world is here, can I say that's probably not going to happen. And I would say, listen to the words of the Lord Jesus, who is our authority. Believe and be baptized. So if you've not been baptized, I want to encourage you. If you love Jesus, walk in obedience with him. Go to the room at the back, chat with Paul. We'll talk you through what that looks like. And it will be a delight, if you know Jesus, for us as a church, to see you go through the waters of baptism. Amen? Amen. If you are here as a visitor and you're only here as a visitor today, unfortunately, you arrive at the end of a story, which is always usually the worst time to arrive. Isn't it? You get there, you're like, oh, oh, that was either a terrible story or it was a great story, and I wish I could go all the way back. But you arrive at the, at the end of our series that we're doing in the book of Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah chronologically is the last book of the Old Testament. When this book story comes to an end, there is silence amongst from God to God's people for 400 years till an angel, angel Gabriel, meets with a man called Zachariah and proclaims that he's going to have a son, even though he's an old man and his wife's an old woman. They have a son called John. And the angels then proclaim to, to Mary and to Joseph that they're also going to have a son and his name is Jesus. So this is a poignant book. This is, it comes at a specific time for God's people. Now the book of Nehemiah, let me bring you up to speed, is about the rebuilding of the walls of the city of Jerusalem. For many, many years, God's people had disregarded the things of God, the law of God, the presence of God, and as a result, God, they were exiled into a nation, into a world that actually suited their desires more than their desires were running after God. The nation that they went into was what they wanted deep down. They didn't want God, they wanted the things of the other nations. So God gives them what they want. He gives them over to, as the Bible tells us, their debased minds. Now, over a period of time, God's people started to return back to Jerusalem. And one of these times was during this story. Nehemiah, who was 
from Israel who was a Jew but had never lived there, grew up in the land of Persia, and he was working for the king. And as he was working for the king, his brother and some other people came from Jerusalem who had gone back previously, and Nehemiah was excited to hear the news of what was happening in the the hometown, in the motherland, in in the city of Jerusalem. And the news was something that he did not expect. He was told that the walls were broken down, the, the people were in disarray, it was an absolute mess. So Nehemiah, even though he had never been there, was moved for the state of God's people. And he went to the king that he worked for. He was the cupbearer of the king. It was a really important job. He went to the king of Persia and said to him, can I return back? Can I return back to see if I can help my people rebuild the walls of their city? Because to have broken walls of a city back in those days made you vulnerable. Put you in a situation where things were incredibly difficult. Vulnerable for attack. There was no way to grow, there was no way to flourish if the walls were broken down. And the king, even though was an enemy of God's people in some sense, the king allowed Nehemiah to leave. One of his most trusted servants, he allowed him to leave to go back. So Nehemiah arrives back, not only with the blessing to go back, but also with papers to say that he could pick up loads of materials to build the wall on the way. And when he arrives, he sees the state of the wall. He gathers the leaders, he challenges them, they're convicted, and together God's people rebuild the wall in record time. But the walls weren't the only problem. One of the other problems was that actually, even though the walls were there to protect the people, the walls were actually representative of what was going on in the hearts of the people. See, the hearts of the people were properly broken up and busted, and as a result, the poor were being marginalized and mistreated. There were people in positions of influence and leadership that should not have been in positions of leadership and influence amongst God's people. It was a mess. So Nehemiah not only builds the wall, but he steps in to restore God's people, to restore them back to what they should be. And then whilst this is happening, God's people discover the word of God again that they had not read for years. And suddenly as it is opened... And as it is preached for, I think, about six hours, Marion nearly hinted how long I was going to be in their prayer, if you noticed. That's what it was. If she'd have said an hour, I'd have gone for an hour because it was Marion. <laughs> for six hours and something happened and as God's word was preached, God's people were reminded again of his wonder. Were reminded again of what he had done for them after years, after years, after years of saving them through Exodus, of all the promises that he made, all the promises that he kept, all the promises they had broken, and it brought a real revival amongst God's people. And they were convicted. And they repented and they turned back to God and they decided that they had to get back to the law. They had had to get back to what it was to know the presence of God. They had to get back to know what it was to walk in his ways because only by walking in his ways, the God who had created them, the God who had saved them, would they flourish as a people? Would they make sense of the brokenness of the world that they were living in? So as they repented and as they turned back, they began to worship. And last week we saw the dedication of the wall and how God's people worshipped him for all they had done, not only amongst them in that short period of time, but all they had done for them over generations after generation after generation. And it leads us now to Nehemiah chapter 13. We will bring this book to a conclusion. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah 13. 
And let's read. On that day, it's the day of the thanksgiving and celebration. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should enter the assembly of God. For that he did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the Lord, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contribution for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking, folks. I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked to leave the king and came back to Jerusalem. And then I discovered the evil that Elisha had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry and I threw out all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites, the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed the treasurer over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan, the son of Zachor, the son of Mataniah. For they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for your house, of the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath, bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day that they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gate of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and the sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. That, that means what it says, okay? I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, 
Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. And he was beloved by his God. And God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sambalat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priest, the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us. We pray that you would speak to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The worship of God's people when they dedicated the wall led to two things. At the end of chapter 12, it led to them serving God. They were worshiping God so much they wanted to serve him. There were people in the storerooms. People were worship leaders. People who were able to became priests. Folks, as Christian people, our worship is not just about singing songs here. It's not just about raising our hands when maybe the emotions get us or the words provoke something in our hearts. No, worship is about giving the whole of our lives in service to God. Romans 12 says, in light of the mercies of God, give your bodies as living sacrifices to serve God. So in response to their worship, they gave their lives. They served. And also, at the beginning of chapter 13, verses 1 to 3, they read God's word again. And in reading God's word again, they were reminded again of the importance of them being a people that God had set apart. The importance of what it was to be a people who he had declared because of his grace and because of his mercy that they were holy. And they were a people who were to represent God to the world. And because God was holy, they were to live lives that were holy in line with God's word. And God, other nations and other people would look in and say, there's something about the way these people live that makes sense. There's something about the way they live. But what had happened over time, they had intermingled with the other nations. God said, do not do that for the sake, for the sake of standing holy. Folks, this had nothing to do with race. It had everything to do with spirituality. It had everything to do for them, for them to live in light, light of what God had called them to live according to his word. See, all the other nations rejected the word of God. So in the midst of this, one to three, their response also was to walk in obedience again. And they separated themselves again because the tangle was happening. It's interesting. What he makes reference to is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 and 5 where God is very clear that, that, that you are, are not to intermarry with the Moabites. You are not to intermarry with the Ammonites. See, those people, when God's people were coming into the promised land, it was those people that tried to put a curse on God's people. 
Now, God, in his grace, turned that curse around and it became a blessing for God's people. But as a result, the consequences were that these people could not enter the assembly of God's people. Now, folks, again, that has nothing to do with race. It has everything to do with their religion. It had everything to do with their desires. They were trying to distort the things of God. And as you read through the Bible, you see that Ruth, who was a Moabite herself, ends up coming in to the people of God and actually becomes a descendant of King David and also Jesus himself. Amen? Amen. So as you follow that through. But what we see here straight away is their response to worship is service and their response to worship is confession and repentance. But despite all this, what we see right at the end of the book, despite all the revival that had occurred amongst God's people, God's people were sliding backwards. God's people were backsliding. God's people were slowly slipping back into the ways. See, great revival had occurred amongst God's people. And Nehemiah had stayed in Jerusalem for 12 years, and he was the governor. And during his time as a governor, I am sure that God's people in the main kept the promises that they kept. We will keep the Sabbath. We will not forsake the household of God. We will, we will engage in being holy and separate for the glory of God. So the other nations look in and say, there's something about those people. And it got to the point where Nehemiah clearly trusted that God's people would be fine. For him to return back to Susa. So he returns back. That's why he tells us in verse 6 and 7 that I wasn't there during this time. That I'd gone back. See, it was always the intention of Nehemiah to go back. Because those of you who have been here, you remind the story. When he asked the king, could he go to Jerusalem? The king's wife said to him, okay, well, chat. When are you going to return? So there must have been a discussion or an agreement at some point. I'm going to come on back this day. So once we get things sorted, we'll return. So it was always his intention to come back. And he clearly trusted. See, Nehemiah had led the rebuilding of the wall. He'd overseen the restoration of God's people. He'd been present during the renewal of people's hearts in light of them, rediscovering the word of God. And it was at this point he felt he could return. Now, after 12 months... Nehemiah decides to leave Susa where he returns back to and come back again to Jerusalem. And he is horrified to what he finds within 12 months. And he finds three things. He finds blatant blasphemy, broken promises, and a blind generation. See, he finds number one, blatant blasphemy, verses four to eight. Whilst Nehemiah was away, Eliashib, who was the priest, who had responsibility to look after the store chambers of the temple. Remember, the store chambers were the places where people would bring their first fruits, their offerings, their grains, their, their, their support in order for the house of God to continue. Now, the reason why the house of God had to continue, because it was the temple where God met his people. It was the temple where the presence of God was known. It was the temple where God, God's people's sins were uh, forgiven through the sacrifice of spotless lambs. That's where it cared. And they recognized they weren't walking in that. And they had these storerooms that were filled with everything that God's people gave. They gave everything that they had in order to be right with God. Now, Elisha was in charge of the storerooms, but what he did was clear out all the grain, all the frankincense, all the vessels, and he made an apartment for his relative, Tobiah, who was, if you know the story, 
an Ammonite. An Ammonite. Now, folks, he didn't just like let him wander in. He built an apartment for the fella. Like, literally brought in furniture, beds, chairs. He made an enemy of God more comfortable than he could ever be right in the middle of God's people. Right in the place where God's presence would be known. And folks, this wasn't just because he was an Ammonite. Tobiah was bad news. Bad news. Right through the whole of the story. Chapter 2, it was Tobiah that was seeking his own welfare instead of the welfare of the people that he had influence over. He was a constant thorn in the side of Nehemiah. And he challenged the value of God's word in chapters 2 and chapter 4. He was angry that the development of Jerusalem was destroying his own influence. Verse 7 of chapter 4, he plotted to kill Nehemiah, chapter 6, and he constantly tried to undermine his leadership. See, this man had done everything that he could to disrupt and destroy the word of God and was now set up right in the center of the community, and he was living right in the place where God dwelt amongst his people. The place of God's presence, folks, was infected by the presence of divisiveness. But folks, this shouldn't surprise us. (laughs) It shouldn't surprise us. Wherever God sets stuff in order, wherever God is doing his work, the enemy, the evil one, the devil, will do whatever he can to get in to distort the order, to disrupt the order, and to destroy what is God. See folks, Tobiah in this story, he was a leech. And God's people made him comfortable amongst them. They made him comfortable. See, this is what the enemy does, folks. This is what he does. He latches on and he seeks to suck gospel life out of you or out of the church. And we either flee from him or we make him comfortable. See, to make the enemy comfortable on the throne of our hearts, which Jesus has won, which Jesus has healed, of which Jesus now dwells, folks, is blatant blasphemy. Blatant blasphemy. So as we read about Tobiah now being right at the center of God's people, I ask all of us the question, where are the things in your life that you know are stopping you from living for him? Stopping you serving him? Where are you making the evil one comfortable where are we creating a platform for him to stand not even a platform but a couch for him to sit on see the evil one tries to disrupt our lives so God won't get the glory that he's supposed to get and we are to challenge him and we are to throw him out and that's exactly what Nehemiah does verse 8 He was angry. He was angry. See, folks, good leadership will always mean delegation. Good leaders always delegate. They always do. Because leadership is about creating a platform and atmosphere for other people to flourish. So Nehemiah was a good leader. He delegated over responsibility. There must have been trust. See, if a leader gives people influence and responsibility and they use that to serve themselves or to strengthen the platform or the couch for the enemy, that needs dealing with. It needs dealing with. 
And every now and then, it is right for holy indignation. It is totally right. When we see a gap between where God wants things and where things are, are not times for us to be polite. It's not times for us to be polite. Remember what happened when the Lord Jesus entered into the temple? The temple that was there to be set apart, to be a house of prayer for the nations as they saw God's people making much of who he was in the midst of his grace and his mercy. What had happened to the temple? It became a den of thieves, a den of robbers, a marketplace where people were, were buying and selling and being abused and people being taken advantage of and the poor being disrespected. What did Jesus do? Did he go in and say, excuse me, everybody, please? Please, I'm sure this isn't best for you in your walk with the Lord. No, he didn't. What did he do? He turned over tables. He turned over tables. Folks, some of us are too polite with the evil one. Some of us are too polite with our sin. You can sit on my couch, but you can't have a cup of tea. No, folks, we need to turn them over. We need to turn the tables over. We need to clear it out. See, folks, there are things that need to be turned over, even in the life of the church as a whole. This very week, this very week, the Church of England, the leaders in the Church of England Church, and of which I have many brothers, brothers who, and sisters who serve faithfully and hold true to the gospel, but don't have the influence but those in the Church of England who have influence have this week voted against the biblical sanctity of marriage and have voted to bless any sex outside of marriage and are now debating whether or not they should change how we approach God and change it to gender-neutral pronouns. Folks, Paul said to the church in Ephesus, Take careful attention of yourselves to the leaders and to the flock because there will be wolves that come from amongst you. Folks, we live in a world where it is rude not to use the pronoun that somebody else says that they want you to use, but clearly that standard is not there for God. He has identified himself as he, him, as father, son. And the very people who have been appointed to shepherd the flock of God have today, this week, vote, are debating, are debating whether or not it's right. It needs to be cleared out and tables need to be turned in the appropriate ways. And if that makes you feel uncomfortable, folks, we sang a song, I will not bow to idols. If it takes me into the fire, that's what it does. This is nothing to do with homophobia it's nothing to do with transphobia it's everything to do to the authority of God's word we cannot change God's word if you are here this morning and you are gay if you are here this morning and you have issues with your gender you are welcome you are more than welcome we want to love you we want to care for you we want to engage with you but we need to be honest with you according to God's word there is a sanctity of marriage between one man and one woman. According to God's word, that sex is only good and right in the midst of the sanctity of marriage. According to God's word, he made us all humans, male and female, and that cannot be changed. According to God's word. And folks, we've got to lovingly and graciously and walk through what does that 
look like. But those in positions of influence, if they don't agree to that, if they don't live in light of the authority of God's word, they need to be cleared out. Spurgeon said, a time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. And folks, not only wider in the church internally, anything that leads us away from God, these are the things that we shouldn't be nice about. Anything that is disrupting God's order, we are to throw out. We are to throw out. Just like Nehemiah in verse 8, he threw, throws out all the furniture that Tobiah had in his apartment within the temple. Not a polite eviction notice. No, straight out, mate. You are gone. Folks, it tells us in Colossians 3, if you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated. At the right hand of God, set your minds and your things above, that are above, not on things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. If you've set your affections on things above, not on things upon the earth, for you have dead and your life is hidden with Christ, put away all the things that are pulling you away from him. Because that old person's dead. And live out the new identity that you have because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? That's for all of us, folks. That's for all of us. See, through the blood of Jesus, the chamber of our souls can be well and truly cleansed. Amen? Number two, he found broken promises. See, the, Tobiah setting up houses in the temple wasn't the only problem. See, Nehemiah found when he returned that God's people had compromised the promises that they'd made in chapter 10. They compromised the Sabbath. They compromised issues of giving their daughters over and sons for marriage. See, for 12 years that Nehemiah was the governor of Jerusalem, God's people, I think, were true to these promises, but within 12 months, they had compromised. See, the first promise he finds, verses 10 to 14, is that there were people were failing to tithe. They were failing to give to the temple. They were failing to support those who were working for God in the temple. And as a result, the Levites and the singers had to go into the fields to work, to pay the bills for their families. Within 12 months, there was no um, sustenance. So Nehemiah says to them, why have you neglected the house of God? And folks, at the end of chapter 10, the summary of all their promises was this, we will not neglect the house of God. But they had. See, the presence of God, the worship of him, the seriousness of their sin before him was no longer an issue for them. Hence, they failed to support the household of God. They failed to give him their first fruits. They failed to look after those who worked in the temple. They failed to understand the sacrificial system. 
to remain right with God. It was no longer a priority for them. They neglected his household again. See, their security and their money and their stuff was more important to them than the things of God. Now, Nehemiah steps in, he deals with that. He puts entrusted leaders to try in some way to guide God's people back to the promises that they had made and the goodness of it was. But he finds another broken promise. They'd stopped keeping the Sabbath, verses 15 and 16. See, Nehemiah found that the people were not keeping the Sabbath day as holy. People were working and they were buying and they were selling. Folks, the issue of this, and if you want to know more about this, go, go back a couple of weeks on, on YouTube and you'll, you'll hear us talking about the issue of the Sabbath and in our series of Exodus. But the issue is this, for people to not work on, a, on the Sabbath day meant they didn't get paid, meant they didn't have money. So for them not to work was to say we totally are totally reliant on God and his goodness and his grace. And God had said, rest, I have you. Let tomorrow worry about tomorrow. That's what God says. That's what Jesus says. So they, they stepped, but they'd refused. And they ended up trading and inviting different people in. And Nehemiah reminds them, what are you doing? It was this very lack of trusting in the, and depending on God and not keeping the Sabbath day holy that got your forefathers in this mess in the, in the first place. Why, after such a short period of time, have you gone back there? See, what does Nehemiah do? He responds straight away, verses 19 and 22. He commands for the gates of the city to be shut as soon as it's dark the day before the Sabbath. Shut the gates. He tells all the merchants that they have to go outside, and if they try and get in, he will sort them. I will lay my hands on you. See, folks, when it comes to sin, and our hearts being captured by other things that pull us away from God, that pull us away from depending on him, some changes you can't afford to wait on and you have to be ruthless. You can't afford to wait. You have to be ruthless. You have to put things in place. You have to get on your knees. You have to battle. In the book of James, it says, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. That's drastic. Throw it all away. Clean your hands. Come to God, but God will draw near to you. Submit yourselves to him. Resist the devil. Have it outside. Come to him, confess, repent, and in doing so, resist the devil and draw near to him. And the promise is God will be near to you. But put whatever you need to put in place with God and with his people in order for you to fight and keep it at bay. It is passivity that is eating up the church of Jesus Christ. Period. We are frightened, we are scared, and we're not willing to fight for the glory of God. And it feels like there's a tirade of the culture creeping in that is distorting the very doctrines that we say that we believe and hold to and believe that people flourish in the midst of. And it is crumbling. Why? Because we are passive. Why? Because we're not willing to put things in place. We're not willing to resist. We're not willing to submit to God. And we are not drawing near to him. When that is the safest place for us to be in the midst of this confusion and this distortion that we are experiencing. 
Folks, put whatever is needed in place with God and his people in order for you to fight and keep it at bay. And do not be passive about your sin. Lay hands on it and clear it out. And as well as Tobiah in the temple and the broken promises of a lack of support for the temple and the breaking of the Sabbath, he finds a third promise, which is my third point. He finds a blind generation. See, in chapter 10, in response to this, and they recognized, and I explained it before, that God's people was called to be set apart, to be a city on a hill, to shine the glory of God so that others would see his wonder in how they lived and made sense of life according to his good word. But they hadn't. And they got captured by the affections of other people's gods. And I came through the issues of intermarriage. And throughout chapter 10, what you saw, the people were put it aside. And that wasn't the, the problem of often the, the daughters or the children, but it was those who passively just went along with it and didn't fight and actually brought them into a really difficult situation. And they were called to set these things aside. And sadly, after 12 months of being away, Nehemiah comes back and he finds that they'd been given over their daughters and their sons to those who followed different ideologies, that had different philosophical ideas, that worshipped other gods, that engaged with other cultures that were counter to the culture that God said is good for his people. See, the separation that God had insisted because his people were to be set apart by him as holy was not just about marriage, folks, but it was about the spiritual trajectory of the families, which meant the spiritual trajectory of his people. Do you notice in verses 23 and 24, half of the children spoke the language of Ashdod. They didn't even speak the language of Judah, but only the language of the people, the people of the culture. Can you believe that? The children didn't know anything of the things of God. They couldn't even speak the language of his people. And not being able to speak the language of the people that meant that they couldn't even read the scriptures that God's people had found so much life in. So strong was the pull and influence of the other cultures that they were immersed in. It had completely taken over. And the next generation coming through were blind to the things of God. Folks, a couple of things here for us. Number one, we are to be set apart. If your philosophy is, I just need to know, let my non-Christian friends know that I'm just like them. No, you are not just like them. <laughs> You're different. You love different things. You live for different things. You have a completely different worldview. You have a completely different perspective on what life is and where life is heading and what eternity means. You are different. You are not the same. That does not mean you don't love. It does not mean you don't care. It does not mean you don't engage. It does not mean you don't have them in your homes. If anything, because you're different, you want that because you want them to know this good news that we know. You want them to know the joy that we know. That's what we want. Of course you do. And if you're not sharing that with your friends, if you're not sharing that with your family, do you truly love them? Because true love that we know from God flows from us. And we want to draw people to, to know the love of God. We are to be holy. We are to be distinctive in the midst of our culture. And folks, that is becoming increasingly easier. Let us be people who are marked 
for what we stand for. Let us be people who are marked by the grace of God. Let us be people who hold to the to truth and love that come according to God's word. Let us be marked by that. Let us be distinctive. Let us be distinctive. Second thing is this. Many of you who are not yet married, be careful who you marry. Be careful who you marry. For him or her to say they're a Christian, I need to be honest, is probably not enough. Be careful who you marry. Because if the person that you are seeking to spend the rest of your life with and bring children with him, if their desires and their hearts is not to make much of Jesus, that person won't make much of Jesus in the midst of your relationship, in the midst of your home, and that is not what, you, what your kids will see is not a household that loves God. It will see a household that is infiltrated by the things of this culture and the desires of your heart. Be careful who you marry. And number three, do your kids only speak the language of this culture? Do your kids only speak the language of this culture? See, what obviously was occurring here, but this was probably a continued thing even after the confession. See, Nehemiah goes back for 12 months, he comes back and it's not like all these kids were born and could like speak within 12 months. This was going on in the privacy of, of people's homes. See, my question is, what is the spiritual trajectory of your home? Are your kids, are my kids growing up blind to the things of God? Do they know the things of God? Do they see you speak about God? Read his word, pray, confess sin, talk about the gospel, reach out to non-believers, walk alongside other brothers and sisters in faith. Is your home open in such that it is a refuge for anyone and anyone, those who know Jesus and those who don't? Are your kids only speaking the language of our culture? Deuteronomy says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Who to? Your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in the house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise, when you play football, when you go sit in a coffee shop, when you pick them up from school, when you walk the dog, when you put them to bed, when you confess and sin because mum and dad have had an argument, when you've fought them when you shouldn't have, when you've said things and actually you fall on your knees and you confess before them. You should bind them, the gospel, as a sign in your hand. And they shall be the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. Proverbs 22 verse 6 says this, train up the child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Folks, that's not a promise that if you bring your kids up, bring your kids up in the ways of God, they will definitely follow Jesus. That is, that is, that, that's not the promise. The promise is this, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he's old, he will not depart from it. What that means is that will not escape him or her. 
What that means is if your children walk away from Jesus, because we are not Jesus, we're not the saviors. If they walk away from him, what they will remember of mum and dad is that they lived according to what they said they believed. And they trained us up according to what they said believe. And if there's one thing that I can say about my mum and dad, they walked the talk. It will never depart from them. So at the moments when this world lets them down, because it will, when this world that promises so much and doesn't deliver anything, when the world gets to that point, what is it that you want your kids to remember? They want, you want your kids to remember how you have pointed them to Jesus in similar moments. Well, Psalm 127 says this, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior, or the children of one's youth. Arrows in the hands of a... Folks, where are we sending our kids? Think about it. Where are we sending our kids? I know loads of us want to keep our kids forever. I know that. Where are we sending them? We're sending them into a confused, busted up, broken culture let us ensure that we fire them off with them at least knowing the goodness of the gospel in and through Jesus. In a moment, folks, there are going to be parents coming out here publicly wanting to thank God for the gift of their child. It's going to be wonderful. And they're going to make promises. And we are going to make promises together with them to how together we as a church seek to bring these children up, not only these children, but all, these, all the others that are going to come flooding in in a minute, in the ways of God. Why? Because this is serious stuff. And life is not a game. And the truth of the gospel is their only hope. How does Nehemiah respond? This is how serious it is, folks. What does he do? He confronts the men. It's not the women. He confronts the men. He beats them, and he makes them take an oath. Wow. Doesn't beat the women and the children. He deals with the dads, the Jewish men who had broken the law. See, Nehemiah is clearly angry, but he isn't angry for his sake. He's angry for their sake. He's saying, this is not going to go well for you. It's not going to go well for your children. He says, look at Solomon. He uses the example of one of the greatest kings of Israel's history. Look at Solomon, a wise king, an influential king, a wonderful king. God's heart was after Solomon like it was after his dad, David. But this intermarrying, this desire of other cultures and other philosophies that are contrary to God and other ways of thinking and other religions of which, folks, that is our culture. It's a different religion. Self-actualization is the religion of the day. Living this different faith is not going to go well, it says here. He says, look at Solomon. Look what happened to him. And if it can happen to him, it can happen to you. Now, folks, we wouldn't beat people for this. <laughs> of course we wouldn't. I think what's interesting is the Bible doesn't seem to judge the response of Nehemiah as good or bad, but it displays the seriousness of what is going on. So my question, dads, are you compromising the spiritual trajectory of your families? 
Are you compromising? Or am I? Are we compromising the spiritual trajectory of our children because of our passiveness towards the things of God? Are our kids growing up not knowing the language of the faith you say you have? Are our kids, dads, captured by the things of the world because you are? Are you presenting one thing here today and another at home where no one else notices, but they will? Dads, what is the language of your home? Because they are watching you, marking all you do, hearing the things you say. Let them see the Savior as he shines in you. Let his power control you every day. There's not a man in here who is a dad that does not want to be a good dad. Deep down here, you might be a bad dad, but I think deep down here you want to be a good dad. And if you confess the name of Jesus, you need to run to him, get on your knees, and take your family with you. Whatever the circumstances, that is the best thing that you can do. Cornerstone Church, let us not be a people that bring up a blind generation. Amen? Amen. So we've come to the end of Nehemiah, a book of rebuilding, restoration, renewal, and this is what we're left with. A people who seem to be in the same sort of chaos they were in right at the very beginning. Which means this. They and we need a better Nehemiah. We need a better Nehemiah. Look how Nehemiah responds to all this in this chapter. Verse 14, remember me, O God. Verse 22, remember this. Verse 29, remember them. Verse 31, remember me, O God, for my good. Now, folks, if you've been with us, you can say that Nehemiah has been uncompromising in his determination to lead God's people to walk in the ways of the Lord. But even in his efforts, even in his determination, he has come to realize that he can't do it. It's like he's saying, remember me, oh God, I've done everything for you. I've tried. I've tried. Folks, the book of Nehemiah has shown us many things. How God restores his people through his word. How his people, how his people we build with God and we build with one another. That the presence of God is what we need amongst his people. That issues need to be exposed and dealt with for the sake of the glory of God. But as we come to the end of the book, the end of the Old Testament, we come to realize that even a builder and a leader like Nehemiah is not enough. God's people after this will sit for 400 years in silence, waiting till the angels pronounce the coming of the Lord Jesus. The coming of one who will leave the comfort of his kingdom toward the streets of a broken world. Who will reach out to the marginalized, the poor, the lame, the blind, the sinner. Who will challenge the religious self-praising leaders who are leading people astray. Who will be plotted against and will walk to a cross becoming the brokenness and the sin of the world. And he will die taking the punishment of God as the Lamb of God. In our place, defeating sin, death, hell, conquering the grave and rising again so that by faith in him, you and me can be forgiven for our sin, can be forgiven for our broken promises, 
can be forgiven for our false starts, can be restored and be renewed. And like Nehemiah, he is going to return. He's going to return after going back to his father, and he will turn, but he will not return saying, I tried. He will return saying, I've done it. I've done it. My question is, folks, what will he find when he returns? See, the Bible says, every eye will see him, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that he is king and lord over everyone. Everybody will do that. The question is this. Will you kneel in trepidation because he comes as your judge? Or will you kneel with thanksgiving because he comes as your savior? And when he returns, he will complete the work. He won't just rebuild a wall, he will rebuild the world. And, he, and, and death will be no more, disease will be no more, every tear will be wiped, every question will be answered, and he will create Recreate a new Jerusalem, the Bible says. Folks, the conclusion of Nehemiah is this. We need a better Nehemiah, and his name is Jesus. Do you know him? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your grace to us. We thank you for Jesus. And we thank you even though this story ends in a desperate place. We thank you and we praise you that we now know that it's ultimately pointing to a wonderful, wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus, our master builder, our wonderful leader, our King and Lord. Help us to be faithful to him. Help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be a loving people. And in our love, present truth that comes from your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we consider the children of our church in a moment, help us to be those who set an example of Christ-likeness to all these precious little ones. We pray these things in your precious name. Amen.